0: Welcome back to Parkside Green's Bible study. Uh, There always seems to be something new in the world, doesn't there, right? Uh, New tips for better health, or new electric vehicles, uh, new wars between nations, new musical songs, new sports champions, new food recipes, new political controversies, new clothing styles, new memes, new hashtags, you name it, the list could go on and on, couldn't it? There's always something new. And there was also a lot new with Jesus, a new teaching with authority mark one twenty seven a new command to love one another even as Jesus loved us John thirteen thirty four establishing a new covenant luke twenty two twenty and in this week's passage luke 5 twenty seven to six eleven we will explore what's new with Jesus. <laughs> using three headings to organize our study. First, a new call to sinners. That's in chapter 5, verses 27 to 32. Secondly, a new method to ministry in chapter 5, verses 33 to 39. And thirdly, a new approach to Sabbath in chapter 6, verses 1 to 11. So we begin with a new call to sinners in chapter 5, verses 27 to 32. Last week, you remember, we saw that in Jesus' presence, Peter became painfully aware of his own sinfulness. But, but Jesus didn't come to get away from sinners, right? He came to call sinners like Peter and James and John to follow him. And, and that same pattern continues this week with a tax collector named Levi, who, who's also called Matthew elsewhere. I think most of us have learned at one time or another that tax collectors in the first century Palestine were representatives of the Roman government. And they often used their position to skim off some extra money for themselves. So they were really doubly hated, right, as traitors who cooperated with the Roman oppressors and as greedy cheats who often extorted their fellow Jews. So while it was maybe surprising for Jesus to have called uneducated fishermen, Peter, James, and John, to follow him, it was downright shocking for a Jewish rabbi to call a tax collector to follow him. Now it doesn't say, but many speculate that in the preceding weeks or months Levi had observed Jesus's public ministry of teaching and healing, making Levi ready to join Jesus's band. We can't be sure about any of that, but what we do know for sure is that just as Peter, James, and John left everything to begin to follow Jesus, so did Levi. He left it all behind. He he traded in life in the tax booth for life on the road with Jesus. But, Before his travels began, Levi put on a great feast in his house, inviting a large company of tax collectors and others to recline at table with Jesus. You see, Levi was enamored with Jesus, and and he wanted his tax-collecting buddies to to meet this rabbi who had called him to leave it all behind. As J.C. Ryle says, a converted person will not wish to go to heaven alone. A converted person will not wish to go to heaven alone. But but you see, reclining at table with someone in this culture signaled cordial relations. And and the Pharisees and scribes, they just did not get that. These Jewish leaders grumbled at Jesus' disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? How could Jesus have have Levi, a tax collector, in his inner circle, and and how can he hang out with all these sinners? Table fellowship with people like this looks like a a welcome invitation into personal relationship, And, and that's something the Pharisees may have thought would make one unclean. And that is exactly what's new with Jesus, right? Rather than becoming just like the tax collectors and sinners, And rather than separating himself from them, Jesus pursues a third path of remaining sinless himself while calling sinners to repentance, to to change the direction of their lives. Jesus did not come to leave people in their sin, but to transform them. And that just scandalizes some of these Pharisees. But just like doctors are called to minister to sick people, Jesus is called to minister to sinners. As the ESV study Bible says, the Pharisees considered themselves healthy before God because of their observance of the law, unless they were actually blind to their spiritual sickness. Jesus' point is that only those who realize their need to come to him receive the help that they need. What's new with Jesus is that his call to repent goes not to people who falsely think they're righteous already, but to people who know they are sinners. You can't blame a doctor for being around those known to be sick, and you can't blame a savior for being around those known to be sinners. What is required to follow Jesus Simply to know that you are a sick sinner who trusts Jesus to make you spiritually well. Well, not only did Jesus issue a new call to sinners, but he used a new method to ministry. You see, the disciples of John the Baptist fasted often, and so did the disciples of the Pharisees. For them, it was typically Mondays and Thursdays they fasted. Both groups regularly abstained from food, maybe in conjunction with offering set prayers to God. But there was something new with Jesus' disciples. They they ate and drank just like most people. And it's not that Jesus was against fasting, right? You remember, after all, he he had himself fasted 40 days when he was tempted by the devil in the wilderness. And he told people that when they fasted, Here's how to do it the right way, right? In Matthew 6, verses 16 to 18. But when the eternal Son of God came to earth, there was really something new, right? Something different from the Pharisees and even something different from John the Baptist. So it was only appropriate that Jesus' disciples would act differently. Just like it, it didn't make sense for wedding guests to fast while the bridegroom was with them. Jesus' disciples did not need to fast when he, the Son of God, was right there with his people. The presence of the King was a time for rejoicing, much like what happens at a festive marriage ceremony. This new method to ministry is appropriate for this period of time. Jesus, he knows the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them when they will fast in those days, yes. He's well aware, Jesus is, that his years on earth are limited. And once he's taken away in his death and in his ascension, it will be appropriate for his followers to return to the practice of occasional fasting, right? We're gonna see that in the book of Acts where Luke records several times where Jesus' followers do fast. But there's no need for that when Jesus, God in the flesh, is right there with them, right? Wedding guests don't fast. It doesn't fit with this era in redemptive history. Jesus explains the situation through what is his first recorded parable in Luke. It's like this, he says, no one tears a piece of a garment, a new garment, and then puts it onto an old garment, right? If you try to use a new cloth to patch up an old garment, When you wash it, there's going to be shrinking and pulling and tearing. You're going to end up with both the old and the new garment basically ruined. Or it's like this. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the new fermenting wine is going to end up bursting the old inelastic wineskins. The wine's going to be spilled. The skins are going to be destroyed. It's going to be a double loss, just like it was with the garment illustration. So instead, new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And then as the wine ferments, the new container will stretch and and both will be preserved. Rather than a lose-lose, it's gonna be a win-win. So Jesus, the Messiah, he has inaugurated a new era and new ways. In fact, that word new appears seven times in verses 36 to 39. Maybe you caught that. Maybe you circled it in doing your own study. That is why his disciples ate and drank during this time. He did not come just to patch things up, but to bring something new. Jesus and his followers did not fit into those old religious molds. But the Pharisees are going to have a hard time accepting this. You you see, no one after drinking old wine desires new, for they say, the old is good. Anyone who was rigidly stuck in the past is going to have a hard time accepting what was new with Jesus. Not everyone welcomed the newness that Jesus brought. And that included Jesus' new approach to the Sabbath. what it was truly meant to be. We see that at the start of Luke chapter 6. On a Sabbath, while Jesus was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them together in their hands. Now, this was not a case of theft. It was within what Israel's law allowed. In fact, if you look up Deuteronomy 23, 25, it says, and I quote, if you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. Right? A little hand-picked snack for a hungry traveler, that's fine. You just couldn't harvest and haul off a bag of grain from your neighbor's uh, farmland. So there was actually no biblical problem then with the disciples' action. But, you see, the Pharisees classified those actions as work that was forbidden on the Sabbath. To them, to the Pharisees, plucking was like a form of reaping, and rubbing was like a form of threshing, and eating showed they had prepared food, etc., cetera, et cetera. So the Pharisees asked Jesus' disciples why they were doing what, in their opinion, was not lawful on the Sabbath. And that's when Jesus steps in to defend his disciples by reminding the Pharisees how, in 1 Samuel 21, it tells about David doing something that was apparently stretching the law of Leviticus 24, verse 9. You see, when David and those who were with him were hungry, they ate the bread of the presence, which was only lawful for the priest to eat. But the narrative of 1 Samuel 21 never condemns David and his men for eating this consecrated bread during their escape from Saul. So it seems that in, in cases of immediate need, actions may be allowed that otherwise wouldn't normally be done. The Pharisees did not understand that, as Jesus says in Mark 1 27, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, right? The Sabbath is a gift for God's people. It's for our rest and refreshment. Moreover, Jesus says the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. As the divine Son of Man, from Daniel 7, 13 and 14, who has dominion over all, Jesus rightly interprets the actual intent of the Sabbath, which, unlike the Pharisees' interpretation, accounts for situations of need. If an exception to the law could be made for David and his followers to meet a human need, as the ESV study Bible knows, how much more can the Son of Man and his followers do something that meets a human need, even though it violated the Pharisees' interpretation of the law? The Son of Man, not the Pharisees through their regulations. He is the Lord who ultimately rules over and interprets the true intent of the Sabbath. I mean, to be Lord over the Sabbath, one of the Ten Commandments, that was quite a claim, right? And as Lord, Jesus can declare what is right and what is wrong on the Sabbath. Jesus had a new approach to Sabbath, which shed new light on what God's ancient Sabbath laws had really been pointing to along Jesus's new approach also comes out on another Sabbath that Luke tells us about. When when Jesus was teaching in a synagogue and he encountered a man who had a withered right hand. Now it may have been atrophied or even paralyzed. It it had likely been his dominant hand since about 90% of people are right-handed. And in a manual labor economy, that didn't have the 1990 Americans with Disabilities Act, we can imagine how a withered right hand had restricted this man's life and his work. But rather than caring about this man's plight, the scribes and the Pharisees were watching Jesus to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. You see, they believed healing was a form of work that was not permitted on the Sabbath. And they don't care about the man being healed, right? Being restored physically, even vocationally perhaps. They are trying to collect evidence against Jesus. In fact, the Greek word uh, translated here as to accuse means to bring charges against it. To these scribes and Pharisees, this man was simply a potential exhibit A in a future trial as they sought to mount a legal case against Jesus. But even though Jesus knew his opponent's thoughts, he said to the man with the withered hand, come and stand here right front and center so there'd be no doubt what was happening. And then Jesus poses a question that gets absolutely to the heart of the matter. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? I mean, you see, to fail to do good in this situation is, in effect, to do harm. The the Sabbath is not just a day to refrain from activity, but it's also a day to do good. The Sabbath is a day to to love God and and to also love your neighbor. But the Jewish leaders refused to answer this question as Jesus looked around at all of them. Then Jesus says to the man, Stretch out your hand, and as the man obeys, his hand is miraculously restored. Imagine one moment it's withered, and the next moment it is fully restored. Notice that Jesus hadn't even touched the man or done anything that could be considered work, nor did the impaired man do any work. He simply stretched out his hand and Jesus' healing on the Sabbath, then, is evidence that he is Lord of the Sabbath. Now, at this point, right, the first time we read it, at least, we expect the synagogue to just break out in clapping or praising God. But tragically, the scribes and Pharisees were filled with fury. Fury. They discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. It is an ominous ending isn't it? I mean, it foreshadows future conflict. Now, of course, Jesus was merely doing what Isaiah had said the servant of the Lord would do. He's proclaiming liberty to the captives, the recovery of sight to the blind, setting at liberty those who are oppressed. But Simeon had been right in his prophecy, hadn't he? That this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel, for a sign that is opposed so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And, and what's revealed with these leaders is that they hate what's new with Jesus. No one, after drinking the old wine, desires the new, for he says, ah, the old is good. How does all this connect with our lives? Well, four questions to consider in closing. Number one, like Levi, after leaving everything to follow Jesus, do we get together with our unbelieving friends and family to to introduce them to Jesus? After leaving everything to follow Jesus, do we get together with our unbelieving family and friends to to introduce them to Jesus? Secondly, like the Pharisees, do we ever have a wrong attitude of separation from sinners? (laughs) The very ones that Jesus came to call. repentance? Do we ever have a wrong attitude of separation from sinners, the very ones that Jesus came to call to repentance? Thirdly, like the Pharisees, do we ever get stuck in an old paradigm that keeps us from embracing a new faithful biblical way of following Jesus? Do we ever get stuck in an old paradigm that keeps us from embracing a new faithful biblical way of following Jesus. And fourth and finally, simply to praise Jesus for always loving the people that he encountered, compassionately meeting their needs, and coming to save sick sinners like us. Praise Jesus for always loving the people he encountered, compassionately meeting their needs, and coming to save sick sinners just like us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we praise you for sending your Son, Jesus, as the perfect physician for those of us who are sick. Thank you for not calling the righteous, but sinners like us, to repentance. Thank you for the privilege of introducing others to your Son, Jesus. We praise you for the wisdom of Jesus's new ways that fit with this new era in salvation history. And Lord, we ask you to keep us aligned with your ways. Empower us through your spirit, we pray, that we might extend compassionate love to others that you bring across our paths, following in the steps of Jesus, through whom we pray. Amen.